Hello, church. Such an honour to be with you here today. Uh, as Andrew said, I'm Dad McPhee. Um, before I get into anything, I guess I wanted to start by saying thank you so much to the leaders here at Coast, to, to Jeff, to Andrew, to Kev, to the leadership team, to the elders, because, man, it's been a tough time, hasn't it, over the last 18 months, dealing with COVID, all the changes that that has meant for church. But the leaders here have not just made it through, but have been pressing into Jesus, have been seeing where God is wanting to take the church in this time and being responsive to change and being ready to see where God wants to take the church. So it's been really inspiring to me. So I want to really thank all of you for hearing God's voice and listening to it through this time. The other thing I need to do before we get anywhere is to say hi to my girls. So hi, Erin. Hi, Zoe. Good to see you. My girls will be jumping around the lounge room right now, so it was worth it for that. Trust me, if you saw it, you would think so too. The other thing that I want to just tell you about, and this is really important, I understand 100% without a shadow of a doubt that the best band ever is Rage Against the Machine. Now, I know most of you wouldn't have had that revelation yet, and many of you would not even know who I'm talking about, so let me just fill you in a little bit. Rage Against the Machine started in 1991, in California in the US. They went on to have four albums selling 16 million sales worldwide. The vocalist Zach De La Roca is an absolute mastermind when it comes to lyrics, with lyrics like this. Cinema, simulated life, ill drama, Fourth Reich culture, Americana, change of the dreams you got you searching for, the thin line between entertainment and war. And if that's not enough to get you going on Raise Against the Machine, the guitarist Tom Morello uh, Rolling Stone called him the 40th best guitarist of all time. It's an absolute outrage that he wasn't number one, but an absolute brilliant guitarist. Rage Against the Machine, they shut down the New York Stock Exchange, recording their, their song, Sleep Now in a Fire, when hundreds of crowd members flooded on them when they tried to record the music video. Their biggest song, though, is Killing in the Name. Killing in the Name was made in 1992 and it became a number one hit in the UK 17 years later. And why that was the case was every year until then, the X Factor winner, the reality TV show, was always number one. And so there was a movement to stop X Factor being number one, so they all voted for Rage Against the Machine instead. To the deep sadness of the whole world, Rage Against the Machine split in 2000 only to return seven years later to the world and enable me to see them twice in Sydney. So you would think from all this that I listen to them all the time, right? Unfortunately, no. Even though I listen to music all the time in the car, cleaning up in the kitchen, exercising in the gym, I still forget their brilliance. It's only when I stumble upon them every now and then in Spotify that the fire gets rekindled in me and I get back and passionate about rage. So it's on that note that we come into John 6. So let's bring the passage up on screen. And we're reading from verse 16 to 24. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. They'd rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water, 
towards the boat. They were terrified, but he called to them, don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat and they realised Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went down across to Capernaum to look for him. I don't know if you got it, it was such a short description of such an incredible event. The disciples go out to the sea, the storm whips up, waves are crashing down on them, they're terrified and here comes Jesus walking on those incredibly rough seas back to the disciples. He gets on board and then they're at their destination. We talked earlier about the resume of Rage Against the Machine. Here's Jesus presenting his resume in a really big way. And as it does with John, there's links throughout here and there's depth of meaning throughout all of it. So I want to just flick us back to John 5, which Mel talked us through the other day. Reading from verse 19 to 21, and it'll come up on your screen as well. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. At the end of today's passage, we start to see an astonished crowd. They're following Jesus everywhere. They're trying to search for him. The masses are trying to see where is Jesus. They want to be with him. They have seen some things truly amazing. It's much more than a few hundred people crowding the New York Stock Exchange and closing it down for rage. So what are they seeing? They've witnessed far greater than a band beating the X Factor winner. They've witnessed far more than just miracles. What they're seeing is the son doing what the father had done. Last week, Jeff spoke to us about Jesus feeding the 5,000, a mirror back to when God was feeding his people with manna in the desert. This week, we see Jesus controlling the oceans. And it's not some calm little kiddie pool that's 20 metres long that Jesus is meandering across either. It's not a calm day on the Hawkesbury. It's Jesus walking on raging seas. And what I hadn't realised until previous is I'd always pictured that the boat was just off the shore. It says in John it was three to four miles. Jesus is walking or making his way six kilometres on raging oceans to get to his disciples. It's a clear act of Jesus doing the supernatural, of doing things only God the Father is doing in the Old Testament. I want to pick up from Psalm 107, and it's coming up on your screen. It says, They too observed the Lord's power in action, his impressive works on the deeper seas. He spoke and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and are at their wits' ends. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storms to a whisper 
and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbour. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. The Old Testament shows that it is God alone who has the power over the waves. But here is Jesus in John 6 with absolute control. And like what happened last week in the beginning of John 6, it's an echo back to the Exodus story. In Exodus 14, Moses had led his people out of Egypt, but the Egyptian soldiers were pursuing them and they come to the sea And it says in verse 21, then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with the walls of water on each side. Through Moses, God parted the sea and his people walked through it. But Jesus is doing what the Father did and more. With Moses, the sea parts, but with Jesus, he walks right over the top of it. Through Moses in Exodus, God parts the Red Sea to free his people from slavery in Egypt. Through Jesus, he walks over the top of the water and he saves his people from the eternal slavery of sin. Before this story of parting the Red Sea in Exodus 3, God reveals himself and gives a mission to Moses in the burning bush. But Moses had a question for him, and we pick it up in verse 13 on our screen. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. And we keep that in mind as we come back to John 6. Jesus has come over the raging ocean, six kilometres to the disciples, and he identifies himself by saying, don't be afraid. I am here. Don't worry, Jesus is here. I am is here. The I am that God uses to reveal himself to Moses and identify who he is, That God is here. Jesus is here. There's no reason to fear because Jesus, God, is with us. It is a massive reveal. Jesus and I am are the same. And we'll see in the coming weeks as Jesus unpacks more in these I am statements. And he has done so, so far in revealing his identity and linking it back to all of the things of Exodus through feeding the 5,000, the echo of the manna, and now through walking on water. Jesus is God. God with us. In Exodus 14, after the Israelites have come through on the dry land, they respond to what has just happened in verse 31. They say, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There's a response to what God has done, and that response is belief. And we know through the history of Israel that that faith wavered, as it does a lot for us today, doesn't it? What is interesting is that they were freed, but it still took them another 40 years to get to the promised land. But then we think of this passage today in John 6. 
Jesus walks over the water, gets to the disciples and immediately that they're at their destination. From the middle of the stormy seas to the destination when Jesus is with them. And I think this really echoes what Jesus does for humanity. When we look back at John 5 verse 24, it says this, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They'll never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death to life. When we invite Jesus in, when we let him into our boat, when we believe in him, we are immediately at our destination. No longer does the storm or the waves have an influence over our eternal position. When we trust in Christ in that moment, we have eternal life. What an epic and brilliant sort passage, just a few verses that just paints the whole picture of what Jesus has done for us. He does all that the Father has done and more. He gives us salvation. He is God. And by believing in him, we are with him in eternity now. And then we come to the disciples and their response. It's interesting to think of the context around what has happened with the disciples. They're a group of largely fishermen. Peter, Andrew, John, James, and possibly more of them were all fishermen. They have witnessed miracles from Jesus on the sea before. In Mark 4, they're on the seas again. Jesus is asleep in the back and the waves and the storm pick up then and Jesus calms the storm. They've already witnessed a miracle on the seas. They've also witnessed a miracle of Exodus proportions in Jesus feeding the 5,000 just moments before this event. And in John 4, the disciples see that Jesus can perform miracles without even physically being present in a healing. And after all of that, the disciples are on the stormy seas and they are fearing In fact, when they see Jesus, they don't have relief. They fear that he's a ghost, which at the time is an omen that death is imminent. When Mark's gospel shares this story, it says this of the disciples. They still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. So the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't really get that they were dealing with God himself. And more than that, even what they understood, they were forgetting. They'd lost sight of Jesus. It takes a word from Jesus to snap them back into it and understand and remember who Jesus is when he says, don't be afraid, I am here. What's going on here? To me, the problem the disciples are experiencing is They have eyes for the waves instead of the mountaintop. Jesus was up on the mountaintop. And remember what Jeff said last week, that the mountaintop was a symbol of holiness, a place to encounter God. Jesus is on the mountaintop and instead of looking to the mountaintop where their Messiah was, the disciples are looking at the waves. They're looking at their troubles. They're looking at the problems that they're facing in front of us. They're looking at the raging seas, so much so that they don't even recognise Jesus when he comes. Their eyes are on the waves instead of on the mountaintop. Sort of seems impossible when you compare all that they've experienced before that they wouldn't immediately flock to Jesus or call out to Jesus in that moment. 
but they've still missed it. Wouldn't it also seem impossible after the gushing passion that I have for Rage Against the Machine, how would I forget about them? But it's sort of human nature, isn't it? If we don't keep things immediately in front of us and remind ourselves of them, they can fade and we get distracted by other things. So how do we avoid this problem? How do we keep our eyes on the mountaintop instead of on the waves? What's interesting is I think Jesus gives us the answer right in the midst of this story, but in the recount from Mark, and we'll pull it up on the screen. Immediately, that is right after feeding the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. It's just that last little bit that I think is really profound in this passage. Do you get the context here that Jesus has just performed an Exodus-sized miracle, feeding 5,000 men and many other women and children, dismisses them so he can go up to the mountaintop to pray and performs another miracle to get back to where his disciples are. That is how much Jesus is emphasising or needing to go and spend time with God the Father. That's how important it is to Christ. We think about our own lives and the excuses we can sometimes create for not spending time with God. They've got nothing on what Jesus has just done. In fact, Jesus often throughout the gospel spends this time. Luke 5 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. It's mentioned numerous times throughout the gospels that he takes this time and in particular in and around big moments in his ministry. He gets baptised with John. He goes to the desert and prays and fasts for 40 days. Where is he arrested? Where he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's no doubt that in Jesus' ministry, time with God the Father is central to what he does. Because relationships take time. They take effort. If you don't take time to jump on Spotify and listen to Rage Against the Machine, then your relationship with a brilliant band will fade. But it's the same with personal relationships too. Relationships with friends take time. Relationships with family take time. I know many of us are going and rekindling that time right now as we come out of COVID. And it's also the same with God. Relationship with God takes time. As some of you may know, my wife Jess and I have spent a lot of time in the past being connected with a ministry called Open Doors, serving persecuted Christians around the world. I've personally met many Christians who have suffered through just epic storms and waves of persecution, discrimination, harassment, physical beatings, imprisonment for faith, anything that you could think of they've experienced simply because they follow Jesus. And yet many of them have the strongest faith that I've ever encountered. Last year, just before lockdown, I had the immense privilege of having a guest to Australia and New Zealand and taking him around on a tour to talk about persecution. His name's Dr. Ron Boyd McMillan. He does theological training in Pakistan and in the UK. He's written many books on the subject. And one of the things he talked about was this very thing. How do they have a resilience and a bright faith when there's so many obstacles to your faith? 
he captured it this way. He said the, the key way to have that sort of relationship is to have a ruthless determination to praise God daily. I'll say it again, a ruthless determination to praise God daily. That's exactly what we see in Jesus' example today, isn't it? That in amongst those epic two big miracles, he takes the time, that ruthless determination to praise God in that moment. And that's exactly what we see in the persecuted church too, whether it is smuggling little fragments of the Bible throughout a prison, singing worship songs in terrible circumstances, or even praying directly over a persecutor who is in front of you. This is what the persecuted church does. This is what we see God doing. And if you get into the book of Acts, it's what you start to see the disciples doing when they start the church. This is how you focus on the mountaintop instead of on the waves. This is how you can have a peace and a resilience knowing that you have an eternity with Christ. Another passion project for mine recently has been exploring habits. What I find amazing is how such a a little habit in your day can emanate through your life and even the lives of those around you, positive or negative. They shape who you are and they shape where you're going. If you start getting into exercise, sometimes your health can start to improve, your eating can start to improve, you get more energy and even your productivity can increase. On the flip side, a drug problem can lead to bad health, financial issues, relationship troubles. Being out of a habit of praising God daily can start to fade away in faith, distracted by other things. And as soon as you know it, your faith has wavered. But a ruthless determination to praise God daily, that's how you focus on the mountaintops instead of the waves. And if you practice that, when then the next wave comes, you're already in the habit of praising God through it and focusing your eyes on Jesus when the trouble is there. So I want to challenge you. Do you have a ruthless determination to praise God daily? Think of the last troubles that you've encountered, whether that have been through COVID or relationships or financial or health. Where have your eyes been? Have they been on the waves or have they been on the mountaintop where our Lord Jesus resides? I challenge you, what can you set up in your life today to focus on the mountaintop? In Jesus, we have the most extraordinary person in history. He does all that the Father does. He even walks on water. And Jesus, he is our saviour. He is God himself. He is the I am. And when we put our faith in him, we are at our destination of eternity with him. Let's fix our eyes there instead of the troubles that are in front of us. Let's focus our eyes on Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we just want to thank you so much for what you have done in Jesus. How Jesus shows us everything that the Father does here, how he fulfills everything from the Old Testament and more. Thank you that he walked on water to demonstrate his dying. Lord, we praise you for what Christ has done. Help us to fix our eyes on the I am. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus instead of the waves in front of us. Help us today to put things in our life that focus on Jesus. Amen.